get our Bibles out to John chapter 11. So every Sunday, myself along with several elders and church members, we get together at my house or somewhere else, but typically my house at 3 p.m., and we do something called a service review. Uh, The purpose of these service reviews is to make sure that our corporate worship is biblically faithful and maximally edifying for the church. So we spend about an hour, hour and a half reviewing everything that happens in the corporate worship life of our church. So on Wednesday nights, when we have our inductive Bible studies, we review that. When there's a Sunday school semester, we review that. Uh, We review the singing on a Sunday morning, the the prayers that were prayed, the, the scripture reading, and of course, we review the Sunday morning sermon. Now, in this service review, the group goes around and offers encouragements and critiques of these activities, including my sermon every single week. We'll go around and everyone there will say, Sean, I thought you did good with this, that, or the third. I also thought maybe you missed the mark here or you could improve this or I didn't understand what you were saying there and and all of that's very useful. Now, three Sundays ago, I preached on John 11 verses 1 through 44 during our time of corporate worship together, the account of the resurrection Of Lazarus. And like every other Sunday after that morning service, we went to a service review and my sermon was critiqued. And in that review, it was brought to my attention that my sermon never really quite got to the main point of the text. I said a lot of really good and helpful things from the text, but I didn't really say the main thing from the text. This kind of critique is perhaps the most significant criticism a preacher can receive from his sermon. And in my case, it was 100% accurate. When we evaluate sermons, we typically think about six things. And when I say we, I mean you, you the listener. You should be thinking about these six things. Exegesis. Did we get to the main point of the text? Do we understand exactly what it is that God is saying to us in his word? Application. Did the preacher help us to understand how the truth of God's word applies to our daily lives? Illustration. Did he help us see the truth? Good stories, whatever the case may be. Organization. Was it easy to follow along with him? Presence. You know, volume, tone, hand gestures, You know, if I'm just preaching at this corner of the room for an hour, it's going to get a little awkward, right? All of that stuff. And then finally, gospel presentation. Did I get us back to the cross? Did I help us to understand how all of this is ultimately about the gospel message? Now, if you think about preparing a sermon like baking a cake, you really need all six of those ingredients to make a delicious, high-quality cake that you could sell down at the farmer's market for $15, Okay? Now, a sermon can fail to have any of those last five ingredients and still be a cake. But if it doesn't have the first ingredient, 
that's not going to be a cake. It may be some kind of pastry, but it's not going to be the cake. It's going to be like someone replaced the sugar with salt. It may look like a cake, but it will not have a cake-iness in all of its constituent parts. Or think about it this way. Let's say that somehow I managed to get Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Himself, I get Jesus to come to review my sermon at Sermon Review. And for whatever reason, in this thought experiment, Jesus is not able to listen to the sermon beforehand. Okay, so he shows up to the Sermon Review, and he goes, "Uh, Sean, what were the three points of your sermon that you preached on the resurrection of Lazarus? And I go, oh, well, Jesus, here they are. I said that you enter into our suffering with us. I also said that you bear with us in our suffering. And I said... Uh, And I said, uh, oh, you glorify yourself through our suffering. And Jesus, full of mercy and grace, would say, Sean, man, thank you for serving my church with the preaching of the word. Uh, uh, Those three things are true. They're all there in the Bible. And so I'm glad that you said that. I'm sure it was helpful. But you kind of missed the main point of the story. To which I might reply, well, Jesus, whatever do you mean? To which he might reply, Sean, the account of the resurrection of Lazarus is about resurrection. (laughs) This is a story all about how I, as very God of very God, have the ability to give life and kill death simultaneously. Did you talk about that? Did you emphasize that? Did you highlight that? Did your application flow out of that? To which I would have to reply, no, Master, none of those things happened. Now, one of the marks of a gospel-centered church is that people feel free to confess their sins and their failures and their foibles and their shortcomings, and they also feel empowered by God's grace to strive to do better when those failures come to light. This is the distinguishing mark of a gospel-centered community, and that should be just as true for pastors as it is for the members. With that being said, I stand here before you today telling you that I dropped the ball three weeks ago in my first rendition of a sermon on John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. And I stand before you here today saying, by God's grace, I'm going to try to do better and fix that today. I praise God that I'm a pastor of a church where we don't understand what happens on a Sunday morning to be a performance because it gives me the freedom to come back and to try again so that we can all be maximally edified as God's word is faithfully proclaimed. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into round two. Father, uh, I need your grace more today uh, than yesterday, and I trust that I have it by your Holy Spirit according to the promises of your word. Lord, help me to preach well. Help your people to listen well. Help them to have hungry hearts ready and willing to receive from you. Shape their affections, God. Help them to learn to love you more, to desire you more, and to obey you more in light of what they learn from your word today. We pray this desperately in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In 2012, uh, I sat next to my mother on her deathbed. She, uh, She laid there for days on in dying of cancer. And by the, by the time um, of her passing, the cancer had eaten away at her insides for years. Now, at this point in her cancer journey, she was 
unable to eat. She was being pumped full of every kind of drug imaginable. She could not have weighed more than, you know, 75 pounds in that bed. And as I sat next to her in that bed, uh, you know, being with someone who's dying, it's a very difficult thing. If you've never experienced that, it's, it's, it's hard, you know. Her eyes were barely open, but, you know, I couldn't actually see them. They were rolled into the back of her skull. Her, her mouth was dry. Her lips were cracked. But the thing that I remember most about that experience was her breathing. She was experiencing something called agonal respirations. That is when your breathing gets very shallow and rapid. It's just the natural and final reflex of a dying brain. And it is a terrible thing to witness. And uh, I sat there with her for, I don't know how long, a long time. Administering morphine, wetting her lips, holding her hand, kissing her forehead, talking to her, praying over her, until finally she stopped breathing. Now, one of my mother's friends, Linda, was there uh, at her passing, and in a moment of attempted tenderness towards me, Linda tried to comfort me by saying something like this, Sean, I know that this is sad, but death is just a part of life. In one sense, Linda was right. Death is everywhere, all the time. To live is inevitably to die. To love in a fallen world is inevitably to lose. Death is normal. And yet as Christians, we must know that although death is normal, it is in no way natural. Although death is common, it is not good. We must remember that death is in fact the penalty for sin. When God created Adam and Eve, He put them in the garden. He had a relationship with them. He provided everything that they could have possibly needed. And when He put them there, He told them, listen, if you rebel, on the day that you rebel, you will die. And they did rebel. And on that day, they died. And now, death is a normal part of our lives because we, like our father Adam, like our mother Eve, we continue to rebel. And therefore, we are under the curse of death because of sin. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5. He says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. This is why we live in a world of death. Now, when my mother's friend Linda tried to comfort me in that dark hour. She did so by trying to normalize death. Brothers and sisters, we must never let death be normalized in our hearts and minds. God's Word tells us that death is not normal. It is not good. It is not the natural state of affairs. When God spoke everything into existence, and he stepped back and said, it is good, he was referring to life. Life is good. Death is bad. Now, if we want to live wisely in this world, yes, we must accept the 
utter inevitability of death. We must take it into account as we do our moral and ethical calculus. But we must never come to see it as just part of the natural state of affairs. One day, uh, while I was on deployment in Iraq, uh, a dying soldier was carried into our trauma center. And he had been thrown from the gunner's nest of his Humvee while they were out on patrol. And uh, he came in, they were doing CPR. He was still alive, but barely. He was going into hypovolemic shock, which not enough blood volume in his body. He was bleeding out. And as we worked on this soldier, we couldn't find any bleeding. And so we were trying to figure out really quickly, we were trying to figure out why he was going into shock and dying. We did not figure it out in time. We couldn't get a line in. He ended up dying. And as he died, his, all of his battle buddies were in the operating room behind us. And when they saw that we called his death, they cried. They wept. They were mourning their fallen battle buddy. And then as soon as we called the death, the doctor presiding over that code did something weird. He, he called all the nurses and medics together. And he began to do a more thorough examination. If you've ever been involved in the medical field, you know that that in and of itself, uh, an examination of a death after the death is not that weird. But what was weird about this doctor is that he did it literally moments after the soldier's passing. Fifteen soldiers crying, weeping over their fallen comrade in the room. You can still hear, they're right there, five feet away, and the doctor immediately proceeds to conduct an autopsy examination. He called all of us over, told us to grab the man's hips. He figured out that it was a hip fracture. The, the, the sharp, severed hip bone had cut an artery, and that's why the man bled out. And, and he was explaining all this even as, his, as the battle buddies were weeping behind us. What he was doing there was cold, was callous. Why was this doctor so painfully unaware of how his actions would affect the grieving soldiers just a few feet away? Well, it's because the doctor had grown numb to the reality of death. He's a doctor in a theater of war in one of the most intense combat scenes of the day. He's seeing people die all day, every day. He was numb to it. Death had become routine. But it should never become routine for us because we know, friends, that God hates death. You can see that in this morning's passage, in the way that Jesus relates to the death of his friend Lazarus. Look there at chapter 11, verses 32 and 35. This morning, we're just going to very narrowly focus on this. We've already explored the rest of chapter 11, so we're just going to focus very narrowly on this. Chapter 11, starting in verse 32. This is after Lazarus has died. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. In verse 33 of John 11, 
John, the writer of this gospel, tells us that Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled at the death of his friend and the way that it was hurting the friends and family of those affected by this death, including himself. And the text says very simply, just two words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, Bible scholar D.A. Carson, he tells us that this weeping from Jesus, it's a mixture of agony and anger. It's a mixture of agony and anger. He says, this is a feeling that you might feel when you hear that a, a little girl from your neighborhood was killed by a drunk driver. Agony and anger. He says, this is what you might feel in your heart on 9-11 as you watch people fall from the sky. Agony and anger. There is a kind of stoicism, a kind of deadening of the emotions that can invade Christianity that I want us to see is, is very foreign to the Bible. It's very foreign to the God of the Bible. There is a kind of stoicism that can creep into the church that says, I see death, and because it's so common, and because my theology takes death into account, and because I know that one day death will die, death needn't register with me emotionally. I can extinguish my passions towards death and deal with it in a more rational manner. Friends, this is a deeply unbiblical way of interacting with death. In the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us to be imitators of God. In that book, he's talking to new converts. He's trying to tell them how to follow the Lord Jesus in their newfound faith. He spends the first three chapters telling them what to believe about God and themselves and the gospel. And then he spends the next three chapters telling them how to live. And right as he begins the second half, the application, he kind of begins it all with saying, well, here's how you do this. You have to imitate God. That's how you live out the gospel. You imitate God. What that means for us this morning is that in Jesus, we see God's perfect moral response to death. He is angry and grieved. When God became man in the person of Jesus, he entered into the human experience. He identified with us in every way, except, of course, for sin, but he entered into the fullness of humanity. And here in John 11, Jesus shows us what a perfectly righteous human response to death should be. Anger, and agony. And we should feel these emotions because death is bad. It is not natural. It is not good. Now, that's like the 15th time I've said that, right? To re repeat myself is no problem for me and it's beneficial for you. That's what Paul told the Philippians. Death is normal, but it is not natural or good. Why am I repeating myself? Why am I harping on this so heavily? Because, friends, it is only when we understand the horror of death, the tragedy of death, the unnatural state of death, it is only when we embrace the appropriate suffering and sorrow that should accompany death that we can then begin to understand the glorious promise of the resurrection. Look at verses 25 and 26 in chapter 11. 
This is Martha. She's, she's met Jesus. She's confused. She's angry. She's doubting. She's hurting. She says, I know that you can raise him again. And in verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you see that? I am the solution to the death problem. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You understand what Jesus is saying here? It is the most fantastic promise in all of the Bible. He's saying that he is the solution to the main problem plaguing humanity. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been showing himself as the sovereign ruler over many other things that plague the human experience, right? He confronts demons and he casts them out to show himself sovereign over the rulers and authorities and the powers and the principalities of the spirit world. He heals human bodies to show us that he is sovereign over sickness and disease and bacteria. He confronts the Pharisees and the religious rulers to show himself as sovereign over the traditions of wicked men, to show himself as sovereign over unjust authority. He even confronts nature itself as the wind and the waves rage against the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. But here in the raising of Lazarus from the grave, Jesus is showing himself to be sovereign over the most significant human problem of all, death. Jesus has been getting at this truth from one angle or another all throughout the gospel so far, right? Several times throughout John's gospel, Jesus has said things like, I'm the light of the world, right? And light represents life. Jesus says, in, uh, John says, in him was life, and that life was the light. Jesus has told us that he is the bread of life, that he is the water of life. If you feast on me, you'll never be hungry. If you, feast on, if, you, if you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty. That is to say, you will live forever. He has told us that he is the shepherd of the sheep. That is, he is the one who protects us from those who seek to take our lives. But each of these metaphors is speaking to the giving of life or the preserving of life or the eternality of life. But here in John 11, with the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus is saying something different, something better, something greater. Jesus is saying, yes, you will die. There is no way around it. This is cosmic law. The wages of sin is death. We have all sinned, and so we all must die. But, but, because of me, says Jesus, you can live again. Because of me, the only insurmountable human problem has been conquered. Because of me, you can be raised up on the last day. We often fear death because death is what happens when we lose everything we love. Now, let me pause right here. You may be sitting here thinking, Sean, well, actually, I just don't, I don't fear death. And if that's true, great. If you're sitting there thinking that's 
true for you, I wonder if you're being honest with yourself. Very often when we say that we don't fear death, what that means more than anything is that we just don't ever think about death. You don't have to fear it if you don't think about it, if you don't talk about it, if you don't focus on it. But those of us who do do what the Bible tells us to do, which is to number our days so that we might walk in wisdom, those of us who do meditate on the reality that one day we will no longer exist in these bodies of death, those of us who think about death and who even as Christians still struggle with fear of death, why do we fear? Because we lose what we love. Just stop and think about the way that we experience death a thousand times before we actually die. Think about how every good meal eventually has to come to an end. You can lick the plate, use the bread to soak up all the ranch dressing. Kind of tipping my hand on to what I think a good meal is, right? But, I mean, it, it all has to come to an end. Every fun and restful vacation has a last day. Every great movie eventually has to roll the end credits. Ooh, but what about the thing at the end of the movie after the credits? Well, that's going to end too. Every easy season of life is soon met with suffering. Every amazing show that we just are addicted to, next episode, next episode, eventually it's going to end. Friendships fade, body parts fail, memories evaporate. Now, when we experience these, these little deaths in our lives, we don't worry or stress that much. I mean, sometimes we do, but we try to keep it all in perspective. You know, we think there will be another great movie or another show or another vacation, and I lost that friend, and that, that hurt, that felt like death to me, but I'm sure I'll make another friend. There will always be another bowl of ice cream. But the final death, the death that all of these deaths are pointing to, that death terrifies us. Why? Because it's permanent. It's irreversible. There is no going back. Do you understand that? There's no trying again. There's no do-over. Death is so scary because when it comes, it cannot be undone. When Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, and smells his four days dead and decomposing body as the stone is rolled away. Everyone around Jesus, everyone around that tomb knows that what they are smelling is the smell of something that cannot be undone. Lazarus is gone forever. And therefore there is a loss of hope. The only thing left in the lives of those who love Lazarus is grief. And they cling to it. Why do we cling to grief, grief so desperately? Because grief, grief helps us feel like our loved ones are still alive if only in our broken hearts. And so we cling to the grief. And everyone is grieving over this irretrievable, irreversible loss of Lazarus. And then Jesus comes along. And he says, though Lazarus dies, yet he shall live. 
when he says this, he's making the most astonishing, glorious, powerful promise that has ever been made. He is saying, I have the ability in my very nature to defeat death. No mere man would dare to speak like this unless, of course, he were insane, and that would be proved out pretty quickly. I, one of the reasons I hope I get to meet any of these faith healers from TV in person one day is just so I can invite them to come prove themselves as we go down to the cancer ward of the children's hospital. You claim to have the ability to heal these children because you have the power over life and death. Let's go do it right now. Jesus makes this claim, and it's an incredible claim. It's a, it's a claim that not even a prophet, a true prophet of God, could make because... Well, this is the kind of thing that only God can do. And so when Jesus approaches the tomb, and when he he speaks, when the words of his mouth come out and find Lazarus dead in the tomb and raise him up to new life, when he speaks life into the decaying flesh of Lazarus, when he reverses the irreversible cellular damage of death in Lazarus' body, we behold the glory of God himself. Now look back at verse 26 again. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The the promise of resurrection, this promise that Jesus will rescue us from the pit of death, it is a conditional promise. Conditioned on what, you may ask? The temptation would be for us to think that this promise is conditioned on our good behavior, right? Like I tell my kids, listen, we'll stop by McDonald's on the way home if you can like, manage to get along and behave and not argue for 20 minutes. You think you can do that? Yes, Daddy, right? That, that, that's a promise that's conditioned on your good works, on your behavior. That's not how this promise works from Jesus, When we are dead, we're in a grave, and you can't dig yourself out of a grave with your own good works. The harder and faster you dig, the deeper down into the pit of death you go. No, friends, this promise of resurrection is conditioned on one thing according to verse verse 26. Belief. Believing in Jesus. Repent and believe. Those are just two sides of the same coin, turning away from your sin and trusting in Christ and his promise that he makes you in the gospel, namely the promise that he can resurrect you. The Bible calls this faith. And faith alone is what this promise is conditioned upon. I love the way Jesus ends his comment there in verse 26. He says, listen, anyone who believes in me will live. They'll never die. And then he says, do you believe this? So do you believe this? You, right here, right now, this morning, listening to me, looking at me. You've been listening to me talk about this stuff for 30 minutes or so now. Do you believe this? I'm not asking if you believe it perfectly. I'm not asking if you never have moments of doubt where you fail and falter. I'm, I'm, I'm not asking if whether the effects of the fall ever 
mess with you so much that your faith doesn't falter. Of course that happens. That's what we saw with Mary and Martha. Do you remember? They were confused with Jesus. Why weren't you here? It seems like you could have been here. And they were probably even angry at him. We know you could have been here. Why weren't you here? And yet they go to him in faith. An imperfect faith, a weak faith, a suffering faith, but faith nonetheless. So I'm not asking you this morning about the quality of your faith. I'm not asking you if you robustly believe this promise every second of every day of your life. I'm asking if by God's grace you in any way believe in this promise. If you do, you should know that you will live again. This promise is not conditioned upon the quality of your faith, but the content of your faith, uh, not the quality or the content of your faith, but the one upon whom your faith rests, Jesus. As I was thinking about this text this week, I just, I could not believe that I failed to talk about this in my first go-around on the sermon. If you've ever preached before, you know how it is. You're getting into the text. There's so much good stuff. It kind of all just comes together. You're like, boom, this is going to be amazing. And it was. It was really helpful. But man, this is the most important promise in the universe. It's the most important promise of the gospel. And I left it out. I dropped the ball. But I'm not going to drop the ball this morning. I'm not going to let anyone in this room leave without asking themselves whether or not they have believed in this promise of the gospel. Now, if you stick around Sixth Avenue long enough, one of the things that you'll hear me say fairly often is some variation of this. I have a little spiel that I do. I'm not going to do it exactly here, but it's something to the effect of like, hey, you're going to die one day, right? I use this in evangelism. I'll say it from the sermons. I'll do it in service leading. You're going to die one day. And then I'll just riff on that. Everyone you know and love is going to die. Your parents are going to die. Your friends are going to die. The boss that you don't like is going to die. The coworker that you love to spend time with, he or she is going to die. Your children are going to die. Your grandchildren are going to die, so on and so forth. And then I, I just make it clear, like, you're going to die soon. Oh, I know it feels like it's a long way away, but... You know, an icicle could fall tomorrow, a truck could hit you crossing the street, an aneurysm could happen, so on and so forth. And then I say, even if you think that maybe none of that will happen to me and I'll live on into old age, a ripe old age, even then you are still going to die soon relative to eternity. The Bible says it, your life is a mist, a vapor. You're here today and gone tomorrow. That's the way the Bible talks about our existence. No one escapes death. Now, why do I say this so often? Why do I constantly bring this up? Is it because I'm just grotesquely morose and this is just kind of my hobby horse? No matter what I'm preaching on, I just like to bring it back around to death? I don't think so. Is it because I want to suck away any possible joy you may experience in this life by constantly reminding you of the fact that one day you're going to die, so don't enjoy that ice cream sandwich too much? No. Let me introduce you to a thought experiment from a French philosopher whose name I'm not going to pronounce correctly, but it's Michel de Montaigne. He says, imagine that you are a criminal condemned to die by execution. 
Your death is certain. You will, de- you will absolutely, for sure, certainly die in three days' time. Or maybe three weeks' time. Or maybe three months. The point is, you will die relatively soon. It's a fact. Now, imagine that between the time of your sentencing and the time of your execution, you are offered many gifts. You're offered fine experiences. You're offered luxurious amenities. During your time on death row, you are allowed to live in a very nice house. Climate control, comfy couch, firm bed, silk sheets, that sort of thing. Aside from the house, you're offered uh, daily many other enjoyable experiences, exquisite entertainment, The Blue Man Group, you can go see them as many times as you want. Cirque du Soleil, whatever you think exquisite entertainment is. Delicious food, filet mignon and lobster, perfectly cooked. Daily massages down by the beach. Whatever your experience is, it's available to you. If you were given all of these things, but you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you would soon die, would you be able to enjoy any of it? Could you enjoy the steak knowing that in two days' time you would meet the executioner? Could you savor the creme brulee knowing that death was just a few days away? Would you sleep well in your fine bed linens knowing that soon enough you would be sleeping in a casket in the earth? Would you enjoy the entertainment knowing that one day in the very near future you would close your eyes and never open them again. The point of all this, of course, is that we will all soon be dead. And so what Montaigne wants us to do is to ask ourselves how we can live with any kind of joy, any kind of real pleasure in this life, knowing that life will end soon in death. Think about it. Even if you get everything that you want out of life, everything that you believe you need in order to be fully happy, in the end, it will not be yours. The more you have, the more you are going to lose. The more you love, the more deeply it will hurt when you lose. And you will lose all of it. All of the knowledge that you've amassed Mr. or Mrs. Bookworm, student, intellectual, you're going to lose that. All of the wealth that you have accumulated, Mr. Businessman, it's gonna, you, you can't take it with you. You, can't put it in, I mean, you can put it in the coffin, but it's not going with you, I promise. All of the skill that you've accrued through countless hours of practice and repetition and drilling and training and studying, gone. All of the relationships you've built, all of the possessions you've acquired, all of it. Gone, irreversibly, irretrievably gone. At the end of the day, our impending death, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, should, as Montaigne suggests, rob us of any and all joy that we can experience in this life. Unless. Unless there is... Life beyond death. 
unless there is a resurrection. One of the reasons why I always, there's several reasons why I always say you're going to die soon. When I'm evangelizing people, one of the reasons is because I want them to consider the claims of Christ for their life now. You're going to die soon and it matters what you believe about this. But another reason why I am always bringing this up is because I want us to feel the weight of death. I want it to rest heavy on our chest when we lie down at night, when our heads hit the pillows, when we can finally turn off all of our devices and distractions. And we can just deal with reality and existence as it truly is. In that moment, I want death to weigh down on us. So that, as Christians, we can feel the tremendous hope of the promised resurrection. Death is certain. And it will steal every good thing that we've ever known and loved in this world. But for the Christian, death is just the door that takes us to another world, a better world, and not a little better, a lot better, infinitely better, unimaginably better. Death is the door that takes us to God himself. And so the psalmist cries out in the midst of pain and loss and suffering, and he says, Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. My career may fail. My academics may fail. My good looks may fail. My everything, my family may fall apart. My health may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. Do you feel that hope? Do you live in that hope? Guys, I don't know how we can do it if we're not clinging to this hope. It it has to be in the air we breathe. We have to really believe that Jesus is going to raise us from the grave on the last day. Otherwise, (coughs) I don't know how we can go on. Paul says that if the gospel is real and we believe it and live like it, we of all men should be most pitied. Why? Because we suffer for the sake of Christ. You take whatever the baseline level of suffering is that Christians, that that human beings experience in a fallen world, and you add to that significantly as we walk with Jesus. How can we endure this tremendous suffering? It is because we believe that only when we suffer and pass through death can we then obtain the glory of the resurrection. Practically, what this means is that the world should look at our lives and see that this is true of us. The world should look at us and go, how do they they live with such peace and joy and hope? Man, they are going through it, and yet they seem to be so settled, so content, so full of life. As I was thinking about this, throughout the week, I was in God's providence considering a financial decision. And, uh, and as I was considering it, um, for our family and for our station in life, the decision is not insignificant. That's how it feels in the flesh, right? As I'm, as I'm looking at my, my life on this earth, I'm looking at this financial decision and I'm like, ooh, geez, this is really weighty. And then it hit me as I was meditating on this that 
I'm thinking like someone who doesn't really believe in the resurrection. You know? I realize that I was thinking like someone who believes that this life is all there is. Guys, I'm ashamed to admit that the resurrection did not factor into my financial equation as much as my retirement. You understand how much unbelief that reveals in my heart? Am I the only one? Perhaps you've heard of uh, a missionary by the name of John G. Patton. If you haven't, you should get his autobiography and read it. But I'll tell you a little bit about him. After two decades of inner city ministry in Scotland, John G. Patton planned to go to the New Hebrides Islands. And there he was to proclaim Christ to the native population of cannibals. As Patton prepared to set out on this missionary venture, to his great surprise, he encountered significant opposition from where? From people in his own church. And he describes one such encounter of opposition like this. He says, Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument (coughs) was this. The cannibals, Mr. Patton, you will be eaten by cannibals. And Patton replied to the man, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. And there in that grave you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus... It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Patton was a man who believed in this gospel promise of resurrection. And he lived his life accordingly. When Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, though he be burned alive, though he be thrown to the beast, though he be eaten by cannibals, he will live. Patton believed that. Friends, if you're here and you do not know Christ, I do not know how you do it. I mean, I'm trying to remember back to the days before I knew Christ. I didn't grow up in the church. I I wasn't a Christian. I got saved as an adult. And this week I've been trying to look back on my life as a non-Christian, and I honestly don't know how I made it. And I, I was barely making it to prove my point. I just don't know how you can get up every single morning and toil under the sun and suffer the pangs of death, and then lie down at night, and then wake up and do it all over again. If you don't believe that there is a resurrection waiting for you at the last day. In closing, I'd like for us to turn to Isaiah 25.
I've said what I just said to you before to unbelievers. I just don't know how you can, I don't know how you can get through life, you know, I don't know how, existentially, I don't know how you make it without this promise that, that I cling to. And I've had people tell me, well, Sean, that's just a crutch, you know. And listen, that's a valid argument. Uh, but the thing is, is a crutch is a good thing if you need it. And I need it. I need this gospel promise. It's found all throughout the Bible, but there's one place in particular. We always go to Revelation, but this is one passage that is quoted in Revelation. I wanted to go back to the original passage itself. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> On this mountain, and that, this mountain, it's Mount Zion. It's the mountain of salvation in the Old Testament. It's, it's symbolic of, of the Lord's redemption. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering or the sheet that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. You see, friends, in Isaiah 25, the Lord pictures death like a big, wet blanket that covers the entire face of the earth. And like everything else in God's Word, we bear this truth out by experience. Death covers the earth. It swallows up everything in its path. And yet, the Lord says, I'm going to take that blanket of death and I'm going to lay it out as a tablecloth for a feast in eternity. I'm going to save you from death. I'm going to swallow death up and then we're going to go have a party. The best food, the best wine, it's never going to run out. Death will be swallowed up. Then he says, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of this people he will take away from all the earth. And then I love the way he ends this. He says, for the Lord has spoken. When God's word declares something, friends, it is unbreakable. This is the promise that we have received in Christ Jesus. But you need to know that this promise could only be kept because Jesus himself died in our place. Friends, the cosmic laws of God's justice do not change. They're universal. They're universal. They're unbreakable. They're unchanging. They're a part of God's immutable, eternal character. He who sins shall die. So the only way for us to live eternally is for God himself, the eternal one, to die in our place. He had to enter into death to destroy it from the inside out. We can only partake of this heavenly wine that we're promised in Isaiah 25 because Jesus, God himself, drank the cup of God's wrath all the way down to the bitter dregs. We get to laugh and delight and enjoy and celebrate for all of eternity because he experienced eternal suffering on that cross. He was downcast for our joy. But on the third day, the Spirit of God resurrected Jesus as a sort of preamble 
to the great resurrection that is going to take place for all of creation. That's what this whole Lazarus story is about. Jesus is coming along and he's saying, I want to show you. I don't want to just tell you. I've been telling you. You haven't been listening. You know, you just, you're not listening. So I want to show you what I'm going to do. Lazarus, get up out of the grave. The rest of the Gospel of John is taking us to Jesus entering into the grave. And then Jesus himself gets up out of the grave. But that's not even the end of the story. That's not even the most amazing resurrection. The most amazing resurrection is when the rest of creation is resurrected in Christ Jesus. And all things are made new. All tears are wiped away. Every ruler and authority and power and dominion are put under his feet. And he reigns sovereign over them all. And we reign in him. We reign next to him at his right hand, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. But until we get there, friends, you need to know that the same spirit that raised Lazarus from the grave and the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave and the same spirit that is going to apply Christ's work on the cross to all of creation, that spirit lives in us. That spirit is the spirit that came to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. How dead? As dead as Lazarus, four days dead in the grave, irretrievably dead. As dead as dead can be, that spirit came to us and indwelt us by grace through faith and resurrected us. We who were once dead in our trespasses and sins in which we all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were dead. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And now we must respond appropriately. We can begin by singing with our whole hearts. Let's stand and sing.